Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. All right. So, hey, thanks for joining me today. I'm not used to having three people join me. Thanks for having us, Tara. It's awesome. So I am so excited about this because you guys are in the meat business, and right now there's so much interest in all things meat, I think, since what we all watched kind of the great melt, the meat meltdown in COVID. <laughs> so, um, so I'm really excited to have you. Maybe I'll just start with Ryan. Do you want to introduce yourself and your company, and then we'll kind of take it from there? Certainly. So uh, my name is Ryan Wagner, and we are Driftless Provisions, uh, joined by Justin Vermeer and Spencer Schaller. Uh, Driftless Provisions is primarily at this point in time a uh, dry-cured salami company. And we were founded in 2017, but we really didn't have product on shelves until 2019. Uh, in the early Early spring of 2019, we rolled out our first shelf products, uh, six different varieties of salami. Uh, we've upped that only a couple, so eight different varieties. Uh, but we went from a co-packed or uh, private labeled salami made elsewhere to now making in-house here in Viroqua uh, within the last uh, month and a half. Yeah, and that's such a journey. There's so much to unpack there. It's awesome. That's why I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Um, <laughs> so, so why don't we why don't we start? Um, and any of you chime in um, just at the beginning. Um, you know, how did you come up with this idea? Um, and I, I'm just going to put it out there: like, why did it take so long to get a product into the marketplace? Oh, oh man. <clears throat> I'll, I'll start off. So I, uh, Ryan here, I had um, kind of envisioned a salami company almost six years ago now when I was living in Milwaukee and um, starting to eat better food and starting to realize that there was more than summer sausage and cheddar cheese out there. Uh, and, and, and it took a little bit of, you know, um, as I was getting older and, you know, getting into jobs where I could afford better food. Uh, I started, started eating these things called, or this thing called salami. And um, as I was in business school in Madison, I thought this is unique because there's not, there's not much of a niche out there right now for this product, or is it, it's a supreme niche actually. Um, and we just, there's nobody in Wisconsin besides one other company doing this. Um, so, you know, I moved to the Driftless region and uh, soon after moving here and, and trying my hand in, in making salami and learning how to make it and procure it, uh, I invited Justin over um, to, to join me in this endeavor. And yeah, it took three, four years of living here before uh, we finally had a product that um, we were ready to bring to market and figure out how to bring it to market. So many things happened in that three or four years, including actually working with Spencer in the, in the restaurant business. And uh, it, it just, it, it took some time uh, financially. And then uh, as a matter of, you know, just having the wherewithal to actually begin a business, uh, 
a lot of steps in there. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you make, um, well, two things. You make hard, cure, hard, you know, cured Italian style salami. So from a, you know, product development perspective, that's sort of persnickety stuff, right? It takes, <laughs> it's not, you know what I mean? It's not like making a hot dog or something, right? Where yeah, you there, of... there's, yeah, there's, there's a time element to it that, um, it adds it adds a lot of uh, a lot of depth, but also a lot of uh, food safety issues. Yeah. So you know the first the very first batch, which I think Spencer may have been the very first tester besides myself to taste the product that I've ever first ever dry cure product that I ever made, um, was made in a root cellar on a small family farm in Viroqua or outside of Viroqua. And um, I thought it actually tasted pretty good. Spencer, <laughs> Spencer might have another take on it. But, uh, it, you know, we just, I, I was just kind of winging it at the time. And we, you know, took it from there, you know, thought, hey, this is, this is good. And then kind of tweak it, tweak it over time, try different recipes. Um, you know, the, the time aspect of dry cured salami really adds to just about every complexity of the salami, whether it's the, the tanginess, uh, the hardness of it, um, and all the different flavor profiles that come through, that time element really has a lot to do with it. Right, and then just for our listeners, because they're all over the country, um, what is this thing, the driftless area that you talk about? Sure, well, the driftless is a region in southwestern Wisconsin, northeastern Iowa, southeastern Minnesota, a little pocket of the world where uh, there was no glacial activity, and so the landscape is still carved up. Um, the rolling hills create uh, the situation in which most of the farms on the landscape are pretty small, small family farms, um, and it's sort of home to an ethos of that, that farming and practicing that follows in hand with that small um, practice. So it's a, for us, it's been a great place to be rooted and a great place for our practice to be shaped sort of by that thoughtfulness. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so well, it's sort of part when you, you know, your brand came out of that, right? Um, so at the same time you're developing your products, you were, you had to make decisions about like, okay, well, what is our brand gonna be? Um, so why don't you talk about that? Cause it's related to place, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, for us, the, the sense of the, the driftless, our hope is that, you know, the driftless sort of, um, if, we're, if we're making salami and sharing salami, part of what we're exporting or what we're creating and sharing with people is this sense of connection uh, it's, we're rural rooted. We're in a small town of about 4,500 people, uh, surrounded by all of these family farms, and a lot of them are Amish. And uh, just sort of um, a through line of thoughtfulness and care and relationship to each other and to the landscape. And that's informed a lot of the decisions we make, from you know commitment to being here in Viroqua to how do we source our pork. There's not a tremendous amount of pork farming happening here, but that doesn't mean we can't uh, sort of abide in that ethos and source humanely, thoughtfully raised. And on a different note, the brand for us, we hope that it sort of evokes this sense of connection. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and you're and, and it's in the name, right? Driftless provisions. So yeah. there's a place right in in the name of the product. Absolutely. Yeah. It sort of holds us to this standard of like, well, if we're going to put it in the name, we ought to uh, abide in it. And mm -hmm. so far, it's working well for us. Cool. Yeah, because it's it, it's an interesting thing about brands, right? Like driftless provisions, because the driftless means so much to you, doesn't mean that everybody knows what that means, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. so um, it, it's calling you to to a certain set of values, right? Which is important because that gets articulated then in how you how you do business, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and there and there was definitely a, a progression, you know, when when I moved out here and then shortly after Justin moved out here, there was that that whole ethos portion of, of our brand wasn't quite there. It we just moved to this area because we thought, hey, this is a, a neat area on the map. Um, this is a neat area that we visited a couple of times, and then over over the course of uh, of years, uh, we come to realize uh, of why this is so neat and and what what is special about this driftless region, and it, you know it it's just very fitting for what we're trying to do. The product itself um, fits into this into this community very well. Right. Right. And, and you did some of your early product development, if I'm not mistaken, in conjunction with a restaurant, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. So um, I, when I first moved out here, I worked at a place called Driftless Meats. Uh, it's no longer uh, that. It actually transformed into uh, a slaughterhouse called Driftless, or uh, Nordic Meats, sorry. And uh, I quickly moved over to the Driftless Cafe, a lot of Driftless. Driftless Cafe and worked with Chef Luke Zahm, um, who most people recognize the name from various things, James Beard nomination and uh, Wisconsin Foodie primarily now. So uh, worked with Luke uh, as his uh, business manager and and then I started up with a charcuterie program there. So Spencer was uh, chefing there as well, uh, sous chef and uh, we both worked together and uh, developed this, this charcuterie program and kind of in-house butchery, uh, which Spencer had started before I even got there. Um, but we'd bring in half hogs, we'd bring in um, whole lambs and, and cut them up and use every portion of the pig or lamb that we could or goat. And it was, it was great. And how did you settle on the shape of your salami? You know, when I think of like traditional Italian cured salami, the diameter is bigger. I'm curious about how you got to that. It was more of two things: um, ease of ease of making, uh, time-wise. Um, when we first started co-packing, uh, co-packing is not cheap, as I'm sure you've talked to several people. So co-packing is not cheap, and also finding somebody that co-pack for you to make your product uh, the way you want it to be made. Um, this this product is taking up space in whosoever space we're using. So it's not a, can we use uh, your space for a month or two months as this product cures? It's how fast can we get it in and how fast is it going to come out? Um, and it's not like a day, you know, in a smokehouse and then out. It is a two to three to four week process. So it, it, you know, having money in a startup tied up into inventory that isn't even inventory yet, it's work and process inventory, 
um, that can be very difficult for, for anybody, but it, for us it was definitely difficult. So um, we elected to go with the smaller gauge diameter um, right away based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, we've kind of fallen in love with it for a couple of reasons. And, and I think the biggest reason is that you can go to the store, you can buy two of our salami um, compared to at cost maybe one of the other competitors' larger gauge salami. And you've got variety. You've got two different types that you can put on a platter. And um, the two-ounce stick feeds two to three people really nicely. And um, you can have that variety. And that's, that turns out really well. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm a finance person, right? So I love, I love your story of having realized about, wow, the working capital involved in this. Like maybe I need to think about that when I'm figuring out what my product is, particularly <laughs> yeah. when it's an aged product, right? Because aged mm-hmm. products just, it, they take so much more capital, right? Exactly. And yeah. to, to go from that transition from co-packing to um, to now in-house, I mean, it's it's the same, but a little bit different. But right. it's, it's very much the same, and and we're experiencing that, you know, currently just that transition to of how course. much working capital do we have to get through this startup phase in our own operations facility? Right, right. So my impression, at least in the facilities I've been in that at make salamis like yours. Um, there's a particular environment you need, right? It's not like they're just, I mean, I know you started by having it hang in your basement, but it's graduated out of the basement into something climate controlled, right? Yeah, Spencer, do you want to go through the process? Yeah, um, so we uh, have two chambers. So basically when we have the raw product, um, pork primarily, we uh, stuff the sausage and then it goes into our fermentation chamber Um, and that's kind of where it all begins with the starter culture uh, high humidity a little warmer environment and then we let it sit for our our gauge size about a week in there and then we move it into uh, the dry curing chamber Uh, and Basically, uh, for our size gauge that we're using, some of the bigger ones, it's about a th- three to four week process of drying at uh, a little cooler temperatures and not as much humidity. Is is this like cheese, is cheese making in the sense that like the curing environment, you know, your wise blue cheese blue because there's this bacteria that makes it, you know, it's a living thing that makes it blue. Is that true for these salamis, that their different environments create different flavors and you have to keep things separate? Does that happen here too? Not, not, not necessarily separate because we can, have, we can have 15 different flavors inside of our curing room. Okay. And they're all going to taste remarkably different from each okay. other. Okay, all right. However, however we, can make, um, we can make the same variety in our chamber and then make the exact same recipe, follow the same steps in a different chamber for a different um, operation, and they will taste different. Yeah. Um, you could do just about everything the same, but it's the microbes that are in the air, uh, the different types of mold that develop, um, good molds, but you know, each, yep. each strain of good mold can be different from each other. So 
all of those are complexities that, you know, now that we're in operation here, uh, our salami is, is tasting is tasting wonderful, but it's there's definitely differences. Sure, sure. And that is like cheese then. That it's it's an interesting thing about these sort of artisanal products, right? That have this history behind them and that idea of terroir, it actually it applies to, you know, relationship to the land, the ingredients get the, you know, flavor from that, but also from the curing, right? The environment in which they're made. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exciting, and and the fact that you know we're just getting going here in this chamber, and our plan to grow into two or three more chambers, um, trying to figure out what 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 different uh, salamis to put in this chamber, and what should we put in this chamber mm -hmm. to cure longer, and what what are the flavor you know complexities that are going to derive from those you know. Right. Right. And but that's exciting, and. It, this is an area, these hard salamis, any charcuterie basically, that is, it's probably the fastest growing part of the meat industry right now. And, uh, you know, I, the reason I asked you, like, why did it take so long to get into it? There seems to be, and I think we're getting at a lot of the, there, there are barriers here. It's not easy to do what you guys are doing, right? Because of the capital requirements, because of these curing things because it's hard to find co-packing that will work, right? It's hard to start these businesses. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, I was just having this conversation on, on Monday with one of the owners of Wonder Steak Co uh, Coffee, which is located in the same building that we are, uh, formerly, formerly Kickaboo Coffee. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, they started with, I, I, I want to say it was like a couple of thousands of dollars a couple and bought a used um, a bean roaster and mm -hmm. then just went from there and uh, luckily they were first to kind of first to market with this higher end brighter coffee and they were able to ride that wave now you have lots and lots of coffee roasters popping up and you know coffee shops roasting their own beans and etc but for us, um, I, I do believe that Driftless Provisions is still on the kind of the, uh, the first wave, if you will, of charcuterie makers, but they are beginning to pop up more and more. E each city is coming out with their own, but the barriers are not a couple of thousands of dollars. Right. Uh, the barrier of making a USDA certified facility um, that meets all the, all the check marks for being a meat plant essentially um, it's it's tough and you know the the numbers go anywhere from a hundred thousand to five hundred to a million dollars to you know start a business um, that has all of the machinery that you need to to get this going you can bootstrap it as much as you want we've done a really good job of that um, with as little as little as we've had but it, at the end of the day there's there's quite a bit of financial you know, need to get these things going. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think, you know, I talk a lot about barriers to entry for entrepreneurs in the food space, right, because, um, you know, it, uh, at, the end of, at the end of the day, if there aren't a lot of barriers, it's hard to build value in your food brand. So barriers, while they're a pain in the butt, are also really good for your business if you can get through it. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're, yeah. see, we're definitely seeing that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
And, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of, um, oh, I, I, Anthony Bourdain's show going to Spain and talking about like using the whole animal and this culture of different sausages and different, um, you know, really local flavors and stuff. Is that, is that, are those things that you guys think about and are interested in? I'll, I'll let Spencer should take this one. I mean, I, I think for my, myself, uh, I mean, that's kind of why I've, I've been with Driftless Provisions for about uh, three months now. Uh -huh. um, but I've been uh, in the culinary cooking for about 12 years. And uh, I think growing up in this region is kind of crafting something that uh, eventually becomes our own. I mean, mo a lot of the flavors that we have now are very, you know, classic uh you know, which in the cooking world is, you know, French, Italian flavors of sure. the finocchiona, the saucy sonsac, um, which are great salamis. But I think, uh, you know, to your point of, you know, Anthony Bourdain and traveling through Spain is like those are a lot of things of like things that grow in your region and being able to utilize those. And I think it's kind of part of, you know, what our grandparents, you know, taught us growing up um, was that, you know, being able to utilize everything that you had and, uh, you know, traveling over there, you see a lot of those byproducts be used in the salami. And uh, I think that's important. And uh, hopefully, you know, down the road, that's kind of the goal for us is that uh, after salami, we'll be able to move into whole muscles and uh, it just kind of helps us work through the entirety of the pig. So, sure. uh, so yeah, so I think that's, uh, you know, part of the Driftless region as well is that we kind of have an abundance of everything here uh, and uh, being able to utilize those resources and kind of craft that into one single stick for people to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting food category from that perspective. Um, all right, so back to, like, uh, like, Ryan, you brought up about you need USDA inspection because you're working with raw meat, right? So that's a huge issue. Um, and then you need to get the flavor right. You need to have these curing environments. Um, and all of that means it's really hard to find a co-packer, right? Precisely. Uh, we, we, we've gone through a couple. <laughs> uh <-huh>. and <laughs> And the, and the reason we've gone through a couple, I mean, each each one was, was a different reason, and, and we don't necessarily need to get into all those details, but um, for the most part, it's just not, it's not a business that a lot of people are in. There right. are, there are butcher shops in just about every community in Wisconsin, and there are three, maybe four that make salami, and one that makes salami as their primary, <laughs> their yeah. primary product. Uh, the others do it in a little tiny four by six cabinet, four foot by six foot cabinet that they do for their customers that come to their store. And that's not our business model. Our business right. model is primarily wholesale and then direct to customer online. Um, right. So we're trying to reach out and broaden across the across the United States with our product, and and we've been able to do that. Um, but we also don't have a storefront that we're worried about as well. Right. Um, well, yeah. and here we are in Wisconsin. It's essentially a Germanic state, Scandinavian <laughs> Germanic. And so even the, so the uh, style of sausage we do here is different, right? It's not the so style you're making, generally speaking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the word charcuterie in Wisconsin has probably become known to people for the last 
within the last two years. Right. Um, and, and, and that's great for us. It's really mm -hmm. great because we not only love to share this product, but we also love to kind of teach and help coach folks of how to enjoy this product. Um, yeah. And as, as Justin was saying earlier, the whole gathering piece of it, um, being able to you know share food with one another is is an amazing is an amazing thing that humans really, really do enjoy um, post pandemic. Post pandemic, to enjoy, yeah, <laughs> hoping right. to enjoy them a little bit more. Um, but that's one thing that we've we've found tremendous joy, especially in our first year of going to farmers markets. And you cut up a piece of salami, and, and you you have to call people over. Hey, come and try this product. And uh, is this a summer sausage? No, it's not a summer sausage. It's mm. a salami. And they try it, and their face lights up because they haven't had, just like I hadn't had six years ago, a really good tasting salami. And the the flavor profiles just blow you away the first time you try them. Uh, yeah. And then and then you're hooked. And then and then they keep buying. So yeah, I grew up outside of New York City, and you know, and in in my town there was. Lots, a lot of big Italian community, right? So the, the small town I grew up in, you'd walk down the street and there were, and it wasn't very big, and there were several places that had salami hanging in the window, right, when I grew up. So it's interesting, right? And in, in other parts of the country, people are much more aware of these flavors and these products. It, it's it's certainly different than than it is here. Yeah, we do, we we do have people in the Viroqua area from all over the place, and you know the the first year that we did farmers markets, there was a a, a French a French woman that would always stop by, and oh, she sure. would just take take a sample of the saucisson sec and just like say, wanna, oh man, it brings me back home. And yeah, I want to start crying right because you can't get anything like that here. So, yep. so anyway, you, you cycled through a couple of co-packers and then you made the decision to bite the bullet and build your own spot, right? Yeah, Justin, you want to pick up on that story? Yeah, well, you know, part of what happened was we got, there's this building in Barocqua called the Food Enterprise Center where a lot of, uh, there's a lot of really excellent craftsmanship, food and beverage craftsmanship happening. There's Wisco Pop and Wonder State and Physiology and B&E's Bourbon Barrel Aged Maple Syrup and um, there are others. Um, but there was a cheese manufacturer in the building. We were able to, we were lucky to take over a production space that was basically already set up. The floor, the walls, the ceiling, everything was food safe. So all we had to do was come in and make some relatively minor transformations and find in some equipment. Yeah, um, you know, and that that's an, a story that's great in and of itself. I really should have Sue Noble on the show because she had the vision about the same time that I was raising money and building my factory. She got um, this gigantic old abandoned warehouse that had been, been distribution center, right? That had been empty for years. She got bought it on behalf of the community through the Economic Development Corporation, and then had to sink millions into it to get, to get it up to food grade. But she had the vision, right, to say that this could be a business incubator, but not in the traditional, like, small-scale sense, in a, in a much bigger sense. Um, and, you know, fast forward, I think, the, I think the Enterprise Center is pretty much full, isn't it? 
there's not a lot of empty space left. Yeah, no. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I don't know, what is that? Uh, 12 years, 13, 14, somewhere in there. I, I mean, and I think, what? how big is that building? It's like, I want to say like 60,000 square feet or over 100 or something. It's huge. Yeah, I don't my, know the numbers either. About, yeah, my guess would be about 100,000. I bet it's about 100. And there, and our, our, there was like this huge number of loading docks too. And back in, I don't know if those are all closed up, but... It was huge. Yeah, the loading docks are still there and in use, you know, yeah. pretty much every day. There's a lot of moving in. Go Macro just started warehousing here, so. Oh, good. It's bustling here. Yeah, bustling. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, you know, if you if you work hard enough and keep asking long enough, eventually you get lucky and the opportunity presented itself right about the time we were ready to commit to a space. And That's so, awesome. Yeah, That's and 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 it, the way that site because people haven't been there, right? The the way that site works is all these businesses basically get their own space, right? Like because you, you in particular have a lot of very specific um, environmental requirements, so your space is your space, and it's not it's isolated from the coffee roaster, for example, right? So. Um, that's that's what's so magic about what Sue did with that building. Absolutely, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great opportunity, and we had been in contact with Sue probably. I, you know, I probably first met Sue the the year after I moved here, so like 2016, and I had this idea of a charcuterie company, and you know, she entertained she entertained the, you know my my dream um, mm -hmm. right away, and kind of walked us through the building and said, okay, well, you could do something here, and you know, we went as far as making plans. Um, you know, in like 20, 2016, 2017, of what a build out in this space would be. And going back to the startup and the, the barriers of entry, um, we, got, we got a rough estimate, just a very rough estimate back from a contractor, and it, it basically killed it right there. It, right, the, right. the amount of money that we would have had to have sunk into this um, was astronomical. And if, if we were from money or we had lived here a long time and people were like, oh, these guys are great, let's you know, borrow them money or whatever. That's not what, <laughs> that's not the position we were in. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, at that point I probably had made maybe 200 pounds of salami ever. Right, um, so, <laughs> in your basement, right? Yeah, yeah in exactly. Your basement. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so nobody was jumping on board and saying, these guys are great, let's, let's create a salami company. It was, who is this, uh, what do you wanna do? Um, so then it was back to the drawing board and, it, and and then back to basically, you know, making it at the Driftless Cafe and then branching out from there and saying, okay, let's, let's do a Kickstarter, um, raise a little bit of capital and I've got the recipes. Let's, uh, mm -hmm. let's start with a co-packer. And it was a, it was a way to get product in people's hands. And then a good year and a half later is when we finally convinced a handful of, you know, awesome people that that had extra extra cash that said okay we believe in you ryan we believe in you justin um here let's let's make it happen and um that that didn't happen overnight that was a six-month conversation but um without ever having product in market we wouldn't have been able to do what we're doing right now not right in right um 
it would have it would have died a long time ago. So uh, just so generous of or so happy for the generosity of of the local people that um, did help us out. Yeah. So how much did you raise in your Kickstarter campaign initially? The, the Kickstarter raised I, I think it was eighteen six so eighteen thousand six hundred. Um, and, and then Kickstarter you know what? takes That's their, actually pretty yeah. good for Kickstarter. It was great. Um, we were we were floored with the support. Um, we have a, you know, Justin and I go back uh, quite a long ways to Camp Manitowish YMCA up in in Boulder Junction, Wisconsin, and uh-huh. the level of uh, networking and community that came from that place um, was. I mean, I mean, it took us over the edge for that Kickstarter almost immediately. I think within forty eight hours we met our goal of, of ten thousand wow. dollars. Good and for you. Yeah, thank you. And it, I mean, it wasn't possible. It wouldn't have been possible without the connections that we we made up at Camp Manitowish. So um, it, it was just a, a fantastic place to work. But then the dividends of like the, those networks and the, and those are still helping us out um, with with this build out those connections that we made there. So um, yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? I think, you know, networks are an interesting thing, right? Like, how do you build them? And, you know, because we all know, we kind of know because people tell us you need a network to help you do stuff. But then it's like, how do you do it? And the answer is you got to get involved in stuff, right? Like you got to go out and do things with other people. (laughs) Yeah, right. You you have to do not COVID things. Yeah. Well, and and what's interesting about your story, too, about that is that it wasn't like a business networking thing, right? That 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 was an outdoor outdoor learning place. Right. If I'm not mistaken about. That's correct. Yeah. So outdoor. Yeah. Wilderness wilderness tripping, basically. Wilderness tripping. Yeah. So it's leadership development. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, the character and leadership development piece has a has implications for business, but that wasn't the function of it, right? But you built a network by participating in that that ended up helping you a lot and still helps you, it sounds like, with your business. Did some of those people end up being investors now beyond Kickstarter? Yeah, um, uh, three, three of them have invested thus uh-huh. far. Awesome. Um, it, we've got interest from more, but um, yeah. Three three step forward and and we're over, uh, yeah about half over half of our investment came from those three. Awesome, yeah. There's such a great lesson there about whatever you know whatever it is that you have as a network personal network for reasons you know not related to your business that's gonna that turns around and helps you in your business. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, so okay, so um, you had to rate, I mean, roughly how much money did it take? Because it sounds like you really landed in a great space because it was kind of already set up to do, you know, if it was set up to do something like cheese making, then it means that, you know, you didn't have to do a ton of modification to make it work for your meat curing. Correct, yeah, and we, we ended up with uh, roughly two hundred and thirty thousand in investment raised. Okay. Um, yeah. Not not actually a, a huge amount considering some of the other numbers I've seen from startup food companies, but um, all kudos to the space that we're in. Um, yeah. That, that saved us for for totally, sure. totally true. Yes, and um, um, 
So, so I think you, you told me you bought equipment from Italy too, right? You, yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the first big decisions we made once we got this space, uh, cause we were going to, um, we had originally thought to bootstrap it and convert right. the, the, the cooler that was in this space into a dry curing room. Um, and we were going to build, um, just get some, you know, paneling and, and build a fermentation room. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, after, after we talked to several different people and companies and business leaders, um, in the meat industry, they, they really steered us towards, um, a more formalized system that mm -hmm. would, I mean, would cost a lot of money, but also would would put out consistent product. And that's something that, you know, caught our attention almost immediately. And we said, okay, if, if we're going to do this, if we're going to do this right and and do it for the long term, the long haul and, and put out product that, you know, we're going to put our name on for, you know, years to come, let's, let's make sure it's right. So, um, we went with this Italian company called Frigio Impianti, and mm -hmm. they make modular units for kind of startups like us um, cool. that can can produce you know uh, enough product that can get you to you know close to a half a million in sales a year, um, and and it's not terribly expensive, and they are they're incredibly consistent. That's as, awesome. As we're finding out, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because otherwise the vagaries will drive you crazy, right? So you said earlier that your your um, channels of distribution, you you um, you're going to be um, are primarily retail through retailers and and online. Did the online part happen when COVID hit, or were you starting that before COVID? We've been selling online since we started. You know, one of the first. We, we sort of launched online with the Kickstarter and with the Kickstarter, we opened up our web store and then we went to farmer's markets and then we started reaching out to wholesale. So it's kind of been part of the process all along and we aspire to do more because it's just a really joyful part of the work to connect directly with customers and see that community grow. And it's we're learning how to do it, I would say, um, but we do an Amazon and we have our own website and mm -hmm. um, yeah, so so it so you were you were on before Amazon before COVID hit, um, and because I feel like that my experience anyway with brands has been if they were on if they were online even a little bit before COVID they had an opportunity during COVID to really build that right because there were so many more consumers who were looking to order food online who never would order food online otherwise. Um, and then people who weren't already online, it was a struggle, right? Because they didn't have a website, they had to get all that in place. So yeah, it was harder for them. We've had pretty significant, not significant, we've had a steady growth in online. And I think if we had been better positioned, if for example, we were where we are now about a year ago, we would have been in a much better position to better serve that. Uh, opportunity. Oh, right, because you had production issues, right? Because you were leaving the co-packer and building your own facility. Yeah, yeah, we had, we had ended up having to switch co-packers pretty much right in the middle of it. And there was a while there where we, we said, we've got, you know, one recipe or two recipes, and we just weren't able to go all in. But we're getting back to it, and we're delighted with where we are now, yeah. 
Right, right. So, so now you can build on what you had, though. So that's that's awesome. So looking into the future, I, I mean, or future, maybe even now, are are your retail customers coming back? Yeah, I mean, in in comparison to last year, I guess I don't have you know an absolute great grip on it because of COVID, obviously. But right. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, from the markets that we're moving into is, you know, recently, I think Minneapolis has been a big target for us uh, early on uh, this year. And Madison's always been pretty decent um, Mm -hmm. and Milwaukee. uh, But uh, I would say that for most of the customers there, we're seeing a lot more traffic. right now in the retail stores Um, and it's kind of difficult uh, to get into stores right away without being able to demo and sample yeah because a lot of stores you know they were having a hard time keeping up with inventory as it was with the products they were carrying yeah and so when you bring on a new product even with different flavor profiles uh, it's still kind of hard if they're not able to sample that to get it in front of the people that you want to right Um, but but I think for the most part uh, we've I would say this first quarter has been pretty successful um, getting into new markets and new stores uh, on that end. And and I think traffic's been picking up uh, at least since since January it has been. Cool. Yeah. And hopefully here we can get demoing up and running again because that has it's such a it's such an obstacle when nobody knows your brand. Right. And you can't demo. Yeah, and I think a lot of the stores, at least maybe the smaller, you know, uh, higher end or niche stores that have a, you know, the the meat and cheese section where you're seeing import, uh, you know, cheeses or they're ke- keeping a wide variety of selection, they're kind of getting ahead of the game. And so, you know, for one example, Kowalski's up in the cities, uh, they've been putting in uh, like deli containers together to send home for customers to try at home. Oh, nice. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So that's been very helpful uh, that uh, trying to get new product in front of people and growing that way. So nice. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think, I think you're right. The retailers were just overwhelmed for a long time with all this and they seem to, you know, have started to adjust some of them anyway. <laughs> and now hopefully we'll just see more people back and maybe the regulatory environment will loosen up a little bit so things like demos can start up again. Um, for us, for us, Tara, the, the demoing is, is really crucial when people haven't tried charcuterie. Um, yeah, <laughs> read, no, you, I yeah. If you read some of those names, like we've got a salami called a cacciatore or a lucanica, sauce sauce. I mean, it's hard to pronounce, and Spencer's got some funny stories of me trying to pronounce or enunciate the names yeah, when, I right. first, when I first got into the business. But um, the... You know, getting in front of customers and, and them picking it up and saying, "Oh, what's a cacciatore? El cacciatore," and um, to get that get past that barrier where they buy it and then take it home and, and try it, it that's hard. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and people are exploring, but you walk into a cheese selection and there might be fifteen different goudas. You could try a different gouda, um, and they're going to have little subtle differences, but it's still a gouda. And people right. understand what that is, but salami's salami's a new game, and yeah. Um, yeah, we're excited to get back out there and get in front of people. I bet. So, um, so you said you can. You think in your current facility and your current equipment, 
you could get up to what you think, a half a million in sales or maybe more without having to go for more equipment? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd say between 500 and 600,000, um, okay. depending, depending on the breakout between retail and wholesale. Sure, always, sure. You know, that, that difference there. But yep. Um, Yep, uh, that that's our that's our goal. Um, uh -huh. We're hopefully going to get ahead of that and have you know more equipment, uh, more of these the, these modular units ordered before we we get to that point. Yep. Um, but then there's also the expansion to smoked products. So oh. uh, we're we're excited about having a smokehouse in house, and we have it here. We just have to get it running. Uh huh. Um, and then once that's up and going, we've got some ideas and are, are going to dabble in that market a little bit before we really take off. Awesome. Do you guys source your, um, I know, you know, we're not, Wisconsin isn't exactly the, you know, epicenter of hog production, right? But do you source your pigs locally? We are sourcing our pork right now through a group that has farms in Minnesota and Iowa mostly. Uh-huh. And so it's not extremely local or hyper-local, but it's as close as we can get. And that's what we're doing here in-house. And this is a family of farms that raises their hogs according to a checklist of, like, sort of humane practices. Uh -huh. um, community housing and um, no-growth promotants and antibiotic-free and, mm -hmm. and all of this. And so, yeah. Well, that's great. I'd say not... Yeah, it's in the long run, we would love to establish relationships with local farmers. But as you mentioned earlier in the, when we were talking earlier, part of the working with local farmers will be much easier if we can give them an outlet for the whole animal. Right. And as it is, we can't, most of the salami production is, is uses the shoulders of the, of the pig. So it's hard for us to say we need 200 shoulders and you figure out what to do with the rest of it. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that makes total sense. And that on top of the fact that we're, you know, we do a lot of dairy around here. Do you do anything with goat meat? Are you working with goat meat at all? We've had that question since we got started. And uh -huh. the only reason we haven't made sort of that transition is because we're still working on building our capacity as pork salami makers. Um, uh -huh. You know, we do make a venison and elk but that uses pork fat. And so Mm -hmm. Providing a non-pork option is is on the horizon, but it's just not something we've put a lot of energy into it yet. Yeah, no, the only reason I bring it up is that the goat, you know, because I know this from Tara's way, that there was no home for the goat way, right? So, and mm -hmm. we have a goat cheese industry in our state, right? So that, you know, the byproduct from goat cheese, there is an issue in our state, right? And, um having the boys in a in a goat dairy right like what do you do with the male goat yeah. baby yeah, goats yeah. right um yeah and 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 we are now in a position where co-packing we were not in a position to have totally understand yeah better conversations with these local farmers and you had put us in contact with jen reimer at reimer family farms yeah. And uh, we're excited about that because, the, you know, a local farmer that might be, we might be producing 1,000, 500 to 1,000 pounds of salami a year for them. Mm -hmm. um, so we can start piecing those things together and, and really living by, you know, um, or living closer to our, uh, our kind of uh, aspirations. And uh, it same goes for, for bison farmers uh, just north of here at, at Crescent Meats. Um, you know, Wayne up there has 
has great connections and partners with bison farmers that we're, we've rolled out a couple different varieties of bison salami already. Uh, it only in operation for about six weeks, but we have we have some bison salami out that nice. uh, just a test batch, but um, it turned out great and we're excited. Are you to working with Honest there. Bison? And Sean from Honest Bison. Yeah, is, is, so we're, we're hopefully so work with him. Yeah, I'm so glad. This is why I love doing what I do because it, those are all people I work with. So I yep. love to hear, you know, and and for a business like yours, it's really helpful in when you make a big investment in um, manufacturing equipment and food, part of the magic of, of what you can do is some making product for other people because it takes a while to grow your own brand and it's very expensive to grow your own brand, right? So mm -hmm. that creates some cash flow for you um, faster when you do that. Yeah, it, and it's needed. It's needed to keep keep us going. You know, We can roll out five, 600 pound batches of every week of salami, but but if we can't sell it all, um, it doesn't make sense to keep making it um, until we get to that size. But if somebody wants a hundred pounds of their own stuff done, perfect. We have the capacity. Let's yeah, fill these rooms up. and then you can keep people employed too, right? Like you can't exactly. like when you're be in the beginning, right? You can you can't just make for yourself on Mondays and then say, "Oops, don't come in until next Monday," right? Like. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you can, but you won't keep employees very long. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and doing, um, you know, private, uh, not for sale venison products for, for folks around here. The, mm -hmm. A venison salami is, I almost guarantee you that 90% of the hunters in Wisconsin have not tasted a, a dry cured venison product. Right. Um, and that is something that is very unique and will light almost any hunter's eyes up, um, yeah. at least it did mine. So um, that's something that, you know, just not only to keep our business going and to get our own operation facility running, but just to be able to do things like that makes, you know, to me, you know, you I know you always say in Edible Alpha that like Wisconsin is a, a manufacturing state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we like to manufacture and for us for the longest time we were sales and marketing only and you know a part of me and Spencer would have never have come over for sure because he's also a guy that needs to get his hands dirty and um, you know I, I love operations that so we're we're excited we're yeah That's... we're kind of, it's thrilled. so great yeah. to see you guys doing where you are. I think you're, yeah, I think it's it. You know, you're in a category that's growing really fast. You've done, you know, paid your dues and you've got some great products developed and now you can actually grow your business and not have to deal with the co-packer problems. Exactly, yep. Yeah, yeah. So have we missed anything? We covered a lot of ground. One thing we haven't delved into too much is, is just sort of like the craft of transformation. We've mentioned sort of it's a raw transformation, but it stays raw and, and all of that. I don't mm -hmm. know if it's worth it to just give an overview of, the, of that process. With the product? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, tell us about that. Uh, well, one of one of the you know salami has, as Ryan's described, it sort of this captivating uh, first taste experience, and part of what makes it so superlative is that by the time a person gets a stick of dry cured salami, it's about half the weight that it was when we stuffed it fresh because mm -hmm. it loses a lot of its weight and it 
water weight and it consolidates the flavor and um, and the whole process is sort of magical in that like we we plug it we don't plug it we mix it with a bacterial culture mm -hmm. that ferments for two days in the fermentation chamber it's it starts at like 80 degrees and 100 percent humidity and we just let it sort of go nuts and um, that drives down the pH and increases the safety of the salami and then from there it hangs until it dries but that transformation is is what makes the I think the the end product so delightful and because it's a craft product and because as you mentioned you, I think you've described it as all these vagaries it's how do you say a well, it's sort of the art of it, right? Like, you know, there's a degree to which you're going to be able to standardize this product, but there's also going to be a lovely level at which this will not be completely 100% standardized. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, part of that's part of why these uh, dry curing and fermentation chambers that we've been talking about have been so instrumental. It gives us control over a lot and yeah. leaves the craft part just enough uh, margin there for us to explore and experiment and develop something that's that might become that is unique to what we're doing yeah 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 and and so because you're working with raw meat um, I think I mentioned and you mentioned before you're you have to be USDA inspected right correct and it's either USDA or you, you could be state inspected for um, the state of Wisconsin has meat inspectors however you couldn't sell wholesale over overseas or over over state lines. So right. we opted for the USDA inspected um, mm -hmm. facility, and and so far it's been great. Um, I know a lot of people don't really like inspectors around every day, but so our USDA inspectors have been fantastic and, and very helpful. So um, I, I wanted to go back to the craft thing. Um, that's that's something that we're getting. A decent amount of pushback on because of the newness of charcuterie to, mm -hmm. to folks you know if you buy a summer sausage from a place one day and then go buy another summer sausage a week later it's probably going to taste exactly the same right it should um, that is not the case with charcuterie um, you know each each batch is going to have uh, variables um, and as as far as the consistency of the product goes um, it is consistently good, but it's definitely going to have a different mm -hmm. profile almost every time. And that's something that happens with, you know, higher end cheeses and, um, and items like that. But it's, it's something in the industry, the folks that are new to the industry that are really trying to grow rapidly um, are doing the things that um, we're trying to avoid doing, and that is peeling the salami and vacuum sealing it and taking away all the live culture that's still on the outer edge with the molds and, and whatnot. And, you know, uh, it's an education piece that we're, mm -hmm. we're trying to educate the customers, um, but we're also trying to stay unique and, and have a craft that is um, worth talking about and worth putting on tables as opposed to competing with the Hormels of the world or, or the Columbus of the world. Yeah, so you have a target consumer who kind of likes the fact that it isn't the same every day, right? And Hormel doesn't sell to the same people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, target market, but people are exploring. And mm -hmm. um, especially on the Amazon uh, sales side, we get a lot of folks that buy on Amazon because, like, what, for whatever reason, um, 
but they're not necessarily looking for that crafty artisan style salami. They're looking for a salami and our price point on Amazon um, or our price point across the board is relatively similar. But like we said, our, our smaller size salami, you can buy one of them and not break the bank. Um, oh, where, whereas, yeah. a, whereas a higher, you know, a six or a seven ounce stick of salami, uh, the traditional quote unquote size, we'll get into the $15, $16 a stick range um, but if you're just trying it, uh, that under $10 is really appealing. Um, but you get people that have never really done the craft salami. They'll open it up, and there might be some white mold on the outside because right, that's, nat- and that's natural, and, and they'll toss it. They'll toss yeah. it in a heartbeat. And, you know, there's a, there's a huge education component to the charcuterie business that we love, um, but at the same time, it's 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 demanding. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I... Um, we, we had somebody in the Edible Alpha cohort this year who was making um, uh, their kelp farmers in um, Maine, and they're making uh, like products out of kelp, right, which is, n- mm-hmm. is an Asian thing. It's not a U.S. thing. So, you know, they're shipping frozen kelp cubes and stuff, and talk about education requirements, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs> but they did a really good job. You open the box and there's a lot of information in there about what exactly to do with what you just got. Exactly. And, and Justin has done a wonderful job putting together those little send home materials. So you yeah. open a box or a package of uh, Driftless Provisions and it's going to spell out exactly what you should do with it. Of course, uh-huh. you can do whatever else you want with it. But um, it, at the bare bones, you know, it's going to talk about all the uh, idiosyncrasies of salami that you probably weren't aware of yep. before you bought it. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So do you think these, um, you know, bison, elk, venison, the, those sort of more unusual things are going to be a bigger part of your business moving forward? I think for the most part right now is, you know, I think it's an avenue that people are intrigued in. Um, mm-hmm. The exotic meats, I think, uh, you know, for the for the hunters out there, it's something uh, that everyone's kind of going after right now. And uh-huh. I was just out in Colorado, and uh, that's one thing out there is like bison and elk. Uh, you go to s- steakhouses and stuff like that on the menu right now. Those are very high-priced items uh, that people are s- seemingly going after. Um, and uh, I, th- I think uh, eventually that's something that's going to gain traction more and more. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think for our company especially is that in the charcuterie world, uh, not a ton of people are doing that, mm-hmm. uh, making salami out of bison, elk, um, you know, venison a little bit. So I think that separates us. And so I definitely think, uh, you know, going forward, that'll be something that's going to continue to grow for us. Cool. And you guys, do we give boxes online, or was that just a holiday thing? We've had a lot of luck selling uh, Christmas packages. Uh-huh. And so that, that we do those at Christmas, basically just specifically these big gift baskets that um, we put in a handmade cutting board and a handmade basket, both made by our Amish neighbors, and then uh-huh. fill it with um, some Wisconsin cheese and our salami and um, Potter's crackers in the last two years. and. That's been great. People seem to really like those. It's a wonderful gift to give and to receive. And um, by we're working right now on building out um, sort of a, a club package that will uh-huh. maybe, you know, maybe like once a quarter send a, a pretty extravagant spread 
to uh-huh. anybody who's interested. And that would be less of a gift sort of arrangement than it would be a practical, like, uh, okay, we're finally able to get together, or it's right. a holiday and the family's here, what can we do? Uh, here's some delicious goods. Um, and we've always got sort of going a classic, we call it the classic package, it's just cheese, meat, and salami. And that's Roth cheese and Potter's crackers and our salami and serves four to six. and. That's sort of a staple and has uh-huh. been a, a standard, a, a good seller on the website. But yeah, the gift baskets, those are, I, those sell really well over the holidays and we're mm-hmm. grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, no, and those Amish, I'm, I'm thinking, cause I, I think I know what those baskets and stuff look like, they're awesome, so yeah. Yeah, cool. this year we got them, we had them made just big enough to hold the cutting board and everything. So conceivably you could just pack it up and carry it off or oh, cool. take it wherever you like. Awesome. Did we miss anything? I think we covered a lot. We did, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I love covering a lot because our, our listeners, um, we have a lot of people who are starting or somewhere in this startup or scale up journey with food brands or they're people who work with people who are. And so, you know, everything we've been talking about is, is things pertaining to your business, but they're so you know illustrative of the challenges that everybody goes through. Yeah, and I mean we could talk probably forever about the the finance portion, and um, but yeah, the the details of it, it's just it, it's it's amazing that we we have you know been fortunate enough to get this far, and we're we're hitting our stride, and we're super excited about where we're about to go. Um, bringing on that smokehouse and then just bringing on new accounts and being able to finally have control over the products, um, you know, from from start to finish, Mm -hmm. from where our supplies are coming from, you know, down to the farm to um, getting product in people's hands. And yeah, we've we've been so fortunate that, you know, we've had the backing we've had that we've had along the way and, uh, and, and the help, including you, Tara, um, to get this far. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a bright horizon for sure. Yeah. And you'll get to raise more money as you grow. It never goes (laughs) away. (laughs) Tomorrow, actually. (laughs) Yeah, tomorrow, actually. There you go. Well, Hey, it was really good to talk to you. Oh, it's so good to hear from you and, and chat with you. And yeah, part of the fab group where we're excited to keep working with you. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.